morning, church. Good to see you all here. We're going to open God's Word together, so I hope you got a Bible with you. We're going to turn to the New Testament book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. If you could head over there as we start this new series that will take us through the Advent season of the month of December. Thinking about, in light of Luke's account, both here as well as dipping into the book of Acts at the end, which Luke also wrote, what are the entailments of the arrival of Jesus into this world, and what are the entailments for his people to live on mission for the spread of his fame throughout the world? That's what we're looking at this month. I pray it's going to be an encouragement to us all. So Luke chapter 1, if you would follow along, I'm going to start reading in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. I read an article in May of 2019 by our friend and brother Ray Ortland, and in that article, actually it was just the heading of the article itself, and I think he captured receptive faith in just three words, three simple words. Here, now, us. Receptive faith is why not here, why not now, and why not use us for the furtherance of your glory? So there's a lot of things that we can learn from this passage that's packed into this glorious text. But the point of the text, the, the way it functions in Scripture is it's about faith. And it's about Mary's faith in particular. The whole thing is built around this encounter between the angel and Mary. The angel comes. So basically a quick flyover of the text. The angel comes to Mary with a message. Mary is scared initially on the encounter. She's scared of this moment. The angel says, don't be afraid. Right? Good things are happening. You're going to give birth to the Messiah. Right? And then her fear turns to bewilderment because she said, you said birth. And I've never been with a man. Right? How can these things be? So this fear gives way to... Um, bewilderment, then the angel says, here's how, here's how it's going to work. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. He's going to bring forth life from your womb. It's going to be a miracle of the grace of God. And, and the angel even goes so far as to say, listen, um, Mary, you need to know, 
the, um, the wheel is already in motion. Because here's something you don't know, Mary, is you've got a cousin, you know her, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, she's already pregnant. She's six months in. And the baby in her belly is going to introduce the baby that's going to be in your belly. The baby in her belly is going to be called John the Baptist. He's going to be the one who says and points to your son. And he's going to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That baby is going to be born in three months. So the train has already left the station. We are fully in, in motion. God's promise is in gear, right? And what does Mary do? She says, be it unto me according to your word. It's this moment of receptive faith. I am willing. I am available. I am ready. You write the story, right? Think about this. So here's a passage that answers the question, what does a life of faith look like? What does it look like? What does it sound like to trust the promise of God, to be all in, fully trusting, bringing on board the promise of God, a, a readiness, a faith in the heart. So for us who believe on this side of the cross, right, on the other side of Jesus' redemptive work on the cross and in his resurrection, what does it mean for you and me in light of the full provision of the cross for our forgiveness of sins and in light of the endless power of the Holy Spirit for the mission of the gospel? What does it look like for you and me to say, why not here? Why not now? Why not us? Why not use us for the furtherance of the glory of Jesus Christ in the world? So I would submit to us that this passage is an invitation into a receptive faith, and it does this by showing us three striking realities. The first is this, the absence of greatness. The absence of greatness, and it unfolds in a couple different ways. So the first is this, a lowly town. We see this lowly town in verse 26. The angel is sent by God. You see the words there. Sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. So this is one of those towns where you have to tell people the town that it's in, right? Because if you just say Nazareth, nobody knows where it is. You have to say, it's in Galilee. I've, my wife and I have been married almost 25 years. We've had this discussion with so many people where I say I'm from New Orleans and everybody kind of knows. And then she says, they say, where are you from? And she says, well... <laughs> Bell Rose, which is a, sort of in the outskirts of Donaldsonville, which is on the outskirts of Baton Rouge, right? So you have to get, you're two degrees away from any city anybody's ever heard of to get to Bell Rose. That's sort of like Nazareth in that sense. I was looking up this week, um, sort of what are the obscure towns, the funny named towns in North Alabama. There's a Lick Skillet, Alabama. There's a Frog Eye, Alabama, right? Just, there's a Scratch Ankle, Alabama. And this, the stories of why these places were named this is so interesting. Here's the thing. If you know how to get to Scratch Angle, Alabama, you've been in Alabama too long. Right? These little bitty towns, nobody knows where they are. And, and Luke introduces Nazareth and he says, so I need to tell you, it's in Galilee. <laughs> For those of you who aren't from here, it's, it's in Galilee. You stop and realize this is the savior of the world making his grand entrance. And the word of the angel comes and finds her not in Athens, that would have made sense. Not in one of the great cities of the ancient world, Beijing or, or Alexandria or even Jerusalem, the city of the living God where the kings of Israel reigned centuries earlier. No, it, he comes to, to Scratch Ankle, Alabama. He comes to Lick Skillet. He comes to Nazareth, right? His entrance into the world, you see this in the Advent text. We'll see it all month. 
that the Christ's entrance into the world signals something about the purpose of his coming. He isn't born to greatness. He's coming into this world and he's going to be despised and rejected, which means Nazareth is perfect. Remember what was said. As soon as somebody heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, reared there, they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That would be the last place we would expect someone who hails to be the Messiah to come from that particular town. It's a lowly town. It's a humble girl. Verse 27, see something about Mary, right? She's not the daughter of a celebrated scribe. She's not the daughter of a a religious scholar of the time. She's she's the tender age, probably 13 or 14. Raymond Brown, the great New Testament scholar, said she's probably 13 or 14 years old, which was a marriageable age in the ancient Near East at the time. And they would oftentimes, tender age girl would, would marry a man who was significantly older. He had already established a trade. Joseph was probably established with his small business of carpentry, serving the area and the locale, places in and around Nazareth. And the thing is, you learn, you keep reading, that they were poor. They couldn't rub two nickels together, right? How do you know? You keep reading Luke's account, his account of things. And you, you come to this moment where uh, here's Joseph and Mary They've got baby Jesus, and they're going to offer an offering of thanksgiving to God. And there were stipulations in the Old Testament that if you had next to no money, if you were the poorest of the poor, God said, just bring two birds. Just just bring me two birds, and that can be your way of still offering a sacrifice. Your poverty doesn't have to get in the way. Just find me two turtle doves or two pigeons, and that'll be fine. And what does the adoptive father of Jesus Christ and his mother bring? They bring two pigeons. They're the poorest of the poor. J.C. Ryle, the great preacher of the 1800s, said this of Mary, both in her station and her dwelling place, there was an utter absence of what the world calls greatness. Utter absence of what the world calls greatness. A lowly town, a humble girl, and a halting faith. A halting faith. So the angel greets, you see there, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But note the words there. She was deeply troubled by this statement. That word in the original language, that word for deeply troubled, only occurs here. You can't find it anywhere else in the Old Testament or anywhere else in the New Testament. It means that Mary was shaken to her foundations. She was shaken to the core. She was deeply, deeply troubled. And there is here even a message for us as believers in Christ down the road, 2,000 years. Real faith doesn't mean that we're inoculated against fear and doubt and struggle and pain, worry. Real doubt, right? Where did this all begin? God makes a promise to Abraham, pulls up alongside Abraham, and he says, look up, count the stars. That's how many children I'm going to bless you with. And it's just going to start with one, the child of promise. And what do Abraham and Sarah, the patriarchs of the faith, what do they do? They bust out laughing. This is impossible to believe. We are way past time for a promise like that to land on us. They bust out laughing and God says, okay, you're going to name him Isaac because that means laughter because I heard you. I actually heard what just happened just now. You laughed when I made a promise. It was hard for them to believe. Now here's Mary. She's being asked to believe in a virgin birth. How ready would you be to believe such a thing? 
It's not like that happened every day. She says, how can this be? This doesn't add up. I know generally how things work with conception. You mentioned conception, pregnancy, and baby. I've never been with a man. This doesn't add up. How am I supposed to believe that? She's troubled. She's perplexed. You climb into her shoes. You think about it, right? She's, she's going to be pregnant. Nobody knows better than Joseph that he wasn't involved. And she's engaged to him to be married. How ready do you think the community and the townspeople are when she says, the father of the baby is the Holy Spirit? You buying that? She's, she's, she's Hester Prynne, right? She's going to live with, this is a shame and honor community. They're not going to buy that this is the child of the Holy Spirit, right? The tender age of 14 years old, and she's immediately, all of this is dawning her. Probably not all the entailments are landing on her, but she gets some of them because she's not giddy. She's not like, oh, finally, I get to be, you know, they're going to sing songs about me. No, that is not what's going on. She's not giddy, which tells you she gets it. She sees some of what's involved. This isn't lost on her. She knows there's a cost. You ever have doubts about the promise of God? You ever look down at words on the page of the Bible and say, I don't know how I believe this. I don't know how to believe this. I can hear the world laughing at me even as I'm reading these words. You, you ever have suffering that hits you so hard it knocks the wind out of you? And spiritually speaking, you don't know which way is up. You ever have that happen to you? Doubt can be a real thing, even for people of faith, even for people who believe. On October 22nd, so this is just several weeks ago, October 22nd, a pastor from North Carolina, and he wrote these words. I have kept vigil. He'd been in ministry for 50 years. I have kept vigil by many deathbeds. Now it is my time to lay on one of my own, sobbing. That was October 22nd, and he died on October the 29th. Christian friend, understand um, it isn't the strength of your faith that saves. It's the object of your faith that saves. Like Tim Keller said so helpfully many years ago, he said, look, strong faith in a weak branch, you still fall. But weak and feeble faith in a strong branch, and you can be held. And that's, that's what we see here, this, this truth for the life of faith is we don't have faith in our faith we don't have faith in our feelings of strong faith and resolute trust in the lord look away from self and look to christ look to his cross which purchased our forgiveness and our reconciliation with god that's where faith looks it doesn't look inside it doesn't look in the mirror it looks up and out to what god has done and what god has said look don't think that god can only hold on to you as strong as you hold on to him don't buy that. Look to Christ. Put your trust in him. That's true faith. It's nothing to do with our feelings. The absence of greatness leading to point number two, the promise of God. And here you see in these next verses, you see something of the intra 
Trinitarian operations, so the, the participation of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit emerges in these texts, and it begins with this Christmas blessing from the Father. Verse 28, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Look, we worship a God who states his intentions up front. That's exactly what happened from the beginning with Abram. God comes and he says, I'm your exceeding great reward. You're about to be tremendously blessed. He states his intentions from the start. Same thing if you grew up in Christian circles, maybe the first verse that you ever learned or memorized was John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes gets to live. That, he states the terms of blessing. You don't have to die. That's the terms. You don't have to die. Believe on him and you get to live, verse 17, the verse right after that. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not the Christmas message. He sent his son to save the world. He states his terms of benediction up front. Good tidings of a great joy that will be for all the people. That's the bells of Christmas ringing. Good news of a great joy. It's not just for Mary. It's for everybody provided you believe. God leads with benediction. It's the sound of Christmas, right? Here, here's the thing that Advent uniquely clarifies, and we need it because we live in a world that's not embarrassed of God, is even inclined toward God, whoever he or she is. There's this notion of, okay, God is out there, higher being, or whatever it might be. Advent is uniquely clarifying because Advent says to us, all of the favor of the one true and living God is bound up in Jesus Christ, his son. You repent, you believe, it's Christmas. You repent and believe, you embrace this one whom God has sent, the son whom he has sent. That changes the narrative lines of your story ending. You put your trust in Jesus Christ. So the text moves from this Christmas blessing to Christmas hope. Christmas blessing from the Father and Christmas hope that's in the Son. Christmas, friends, is about what only God can do. You see the language that's used there. He will be great. Mary, let me tell you about this person. You're going to give birth. He's going to be great. He will be called the son of the most high. His throne will endure. In other words, he'll be strong enough to hold you. He'll be strong enough to shield us from Satan, powers that are too powerful for us. And his throne will endure to the end of time. He will be sufficient. He will satisfy our hearts, even in a world that was filled with heaviness and despair and hopelessness. Christmas is God speaking from the word go and writing redemption on the walls. Because he's here, everything can be different. Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thine image in his place. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found because he's here, he's coming. The possibility of redemption is written all over Christmas. A, a sister in Christ who's been a deep encouragement to me in my faith, e albeit from a distance, because I don't know her all that well, but her Twitter account is a deep encouragement to me because she has seen unspeakable evil and suffering in her life. She is a survivor of abuse of many kinds. And here's what she pins to the top of her Twitter page. Her name is Hannah Kate. And here's the, the biography pinned to the top of her page, quote, despite years of starvation, rape, and other abuses, I am alive. 
Despite being abandoned by my parents as a kid, I have a family. Despite the church forgetting me for over 20 years, I have a church home. Despite everything evil meant for harm, I'm loved by God. Redemption wins. That's Christmas. From the word go, redemption wins. And here, you have yourself a redeemer. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. There is only one person with human blood running in his veins who will never let us down. Jesus Christ. He alone is able to bear our deepest hopes. He alone is able to shoulder our deepest weights and heaviest burdens. Why? Because the text says, let me show you where the arrow is flying. He shall be great to world's end. He shall be great. Look, can I talk about just our culture as a church for just a second? And this is something, I didn't start it, I inherited it, and I'm so glad I inherited it. And it is a one-month calendar in advance. We're going to spend the whole month, every year, looking at Advent. All the way through the month of December, we're going to sit in this theme. What theme? He shall be great. He has come. The government shall be on his shoulders. His kingdom, there will be no end. We just marinate in that Advent truth. How many of you need that? After this year, I'll take it. December couldn't come at a better time, right? The, the writer Malcolm Muggeridge, he was a fascinating thinker. He grew up in an atheistic household, did not believe. He ended up, he was a British, the spy for the British, World War II, just a fascinating life. And then he comes to faith in Jesus Christ and he just becomes this battle axe in the cause and defense of the truth. And here's what Malcolm Muggeridge writes. He said, we acknowledge a king men did not crown and cannot dethrone. We are citizens of a city of God that men did not build and cannot destroy. What's he thinking of? Maybe Luke 1. Maybe he's thinking about the climactic end of the entire Bible where this eternal city comes down and the king is on his throne and he invites his people to rule and reign with him in a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy that lasts forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Look, we need that message and we need it now. We need it yesterday, right? To a world that is crammed with false gods and false hopes and broken sisters, to a world that is teeming with lust and guilt and shame. Advent passages, what do they do? They have hope on the offer. They extend hope to a weary, broken, desperate world. I love what we do, this thing that we do each December, because what are we doing each December together? We are climbing into the story of the Bible, the big one, the meta-narrative. We're climbing into the story of the Bible, and together with the community of faith, we're waiting for Jesus. That's what Advent means. Together with the community of faith, through the ages, we wait for Jesus. We contemplate what his arrival has meant for our forgiveness of sins and his death on the cross. What his arrival means for the prospect of new life through his empty tomb. What it means for a renewed world under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And what it means, the implications it has for us to live on mission for the people who haven't heard that. The angel brings a word of Christmas hope and then a Christmas miracle. 
Christmas miracle from the Holy Spirit to this virgin birth. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit brings forth life in the womb of Mary. You know, miraculous births play a starring role in the unfolding story of the whole Bible. You could just track it at every major turning point in the Old Testament leading up to Jesus. Every major turning point, there's a miraculous birth that plays a starring and lead role. So just start with the patriarch. Word to Abraham that you will have a child. Even in your old age, your wife will conceive and give birth to a son. She gives birth to the promised child. You move from the patriarchal period to the period of the Exodus. Moses' conception is not miraculous in and of itself, but his escape from the threat of danger sure is. And you meet this deliverer, and he doesn't look like much when you first meet him. Why? Because he's wriggling in the basket floating down the Nile River. Right, you move from the Exodus period to the period of the judges. The people need a protector because the Philistines are dominating them all day, every day. And Samson's mother is unable to conceive. But an angel comes to her and says, you're going to give birth to one who's stronger than the Philistines. He's going to save the people of Israel. You move from the period of the judges to the period of the prophets and the kings. And you come to the very first opening chapter of 1 Samuel. And what do you hear? You hear a woman crying. And what does she want? She wants a baby. She wants a child. She says, please, give me a child. And the Lord hears Hannah's prayer, and he gives her a child. And what's his name? Samuel. And he's a prophet in a long line of prophets who are coming. And he's not just a prophet. He's a kingmaker. He's going to pour oil over the head of the man who will become King David. Each turning point in Old Testament history, you find a pregnant woman pregnant with the promises of God and then darkness falls on the period of the exile that's the last period that closes down everything in the old testament in the period of exile what do you hear you hear Isaiah the prophet and he promises something awesome he compares this coming deliverance of God's people to a miraculous pregnancy he says this Isaiah 54 1 sing O barren one who did not bear burst into song and shout for the children of the desolate woman will become more than the children of her that is married, says the Lord. Time and time and time again, and then leading all the way up to Christmas morning, you will give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus because he will save. God answers Mary's perplexing question with words that have buoyed the hopes and bolstered the faith of God's people for 2,000 years now. What are the words that the angel says? He says, nothing is impossible with God. You're not going to have to quarterback this. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. He's going to carry it to completion. It's already in the works. You should see Elizabeth. She's six months in with John the Baptist. The absence of greatness, the promise of God, and finally the presence of faith. The presence of faith. It's the honor of honors, isn't it? To give birth to the Savior of the world. And yet there is, this, there is something ominous in this promise. There is something heavy, even something you might say that's dark about the promise of the Christ child. She doesn't miss it, and Simeon doesn't allow her to miss it under inspiration, Simeon says to Mary, in Luke chapter 2, he says this, Behold, this child 
is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul, Mary. It's going to feel like a sword thrust before the whole story unfolds. That's the backdrop of the Christmas announcement, right? She, so she knows there's a cost. It's why she's deeply troubled. And yet, this is the awesome thing about her exemplary faith in this text. She knows there's a cost, and yet what do we hear her saying? Verse 38, I am yours. I am yours. I am the Lord's servant. Many, it could be translated literally, behold, I'm the slave of the Lord. Our English Bibles veer away from that word slave for obvious reasons because of human slavery is so degrading. It's so hard to break that association, but, but not so with God. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he says, you are not your own. You belong to someone. You were bought with a price, and that's good news. He calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. It's good news that you belong to someone because the someone to whom you belong loves you. It's almost like if, if you've seen the movie Toy Story, and what are all the toys want? You want to be you want to be so chosen that you look down at the bottom of your shoe and what do you see? Andy. You look down and you, and you realize, I belong. He's written his name on me. I'm not my own. I belong to someone and that someone loves me. This beautiful example of the simplicity of faith. Mary hears what God plans to do. She hears that she's going to be somehow involved in this. She hears that there's a great cost and she says two things. I am yours, and as you've said, as you've said, may it happen to me as you have said. That verse is the key to this whole passage. It's about faith. It, that's the take-home. This passage focuses on this receptive faith. In a word, the life of faith, if I could quote the King James Version of this, it is, be it unto me according to your word. You know what Mary is essentially saying? I hear that there's a cost, but let's do it exactly the way you just told it. That, that whole story there, even the pain of it, let's do that. At your will, at your word, be it unto me. What's she saying? She's saying, essentially, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. That's what faith, faith talks like that. You know, Corey Ten Boom lived a life of unbelievable faith self-sacrifice and risk-taking. Her, her family hid Jews in their house under Nazi occupation. They eventually were caught for it and imprisoned. She writes about some of the fears that she faced up to in that moment of imprisonment. And she says, there was a conversation that I had with my father when I was six years old and it held me all the way through those fears that I was up against. And she said, because I remember when I was six, I was overcome with fear of death. She said, a friend of our family Someone died unexpectedly, and she said, it hit me so hard. One night, I was in my room, six years old, and she said, my dad walked in, and she said, Papa, you can't die. You can't die. Do not die. And how did her dad lead young Corey Ten Boom to understand what it means to trust in God in the face of fears? Here's what her father told her when she was six years old, and it lasted to the end of her life. He said, Corey, when we go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? Weeks before? No, just before we get on the train. 
Exactly. And our wise father knows when we will need his strength. Don't run ahead of him, Corey. I don't know the future, but I know the one who holds the future. You know, my prayer for our time, even studying this text this morning, has been that God would work in hidden places in in our lives. And maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, he would move you from verse 34 to verse 38. He would move people from how can this be to just as you've said. Let's do it that way. You write the story. Here's the pen. You decide what happens next. I'm deciding. I'm following you. You know, throughout the ages, God's people have served up excuses why it couldn't be me. God comes to Moses, one after another after another. Here's why. You got the wrong person. Has to be someone else. Here's the thing is, you follow all the patterns of those encounters. God never buys it. He never buys their excuses. The late author A.W. Tozer, in his book about the Holy Spirit, he wrote these words. Unbelief says, some other time, but not now. Some other place, but not here. Some other people, but not us. Faith says, anything God did anywhere else, he will do here. Anything he was willing to do at any other time, he will do now. Anything God ever did for any people, he is willing to do for us, if we will yield and obey. You know, before Luke 1, and then inside Luke 1, And then after Luke 1, the life of faith says three words. Here, now, and us. Why not here? Why not now? Why not use us for the furtherance of your glory in our time? For the fame of Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's what we're talking about global offering and giving and going, all of that. Why not here? Why not us? Why could we not be a part of the greatest mission on planet Earth, the spread of the hope of the gospel that the world desperately needs, and it's only found in one place, Jesus Christ. 